February 9th, 2012. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Gina Cooperberg. Uh, she's an associate professor of psychology with appointments at Tufts University and the Department of Psychiatry at Mass General. She's a cognitive neuroscientist and psychiatrist. Her research looks at how the brain sequentially builds meaning and coherence during language processing using a variety of spatial and temporal measures. Hi, Gina. Hi. Uh, around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. And we've got Nicole Witcha. Hi. And we've got me, your host, Salma Karashi. So, um, Gina, you have a, a large body of work on various aspects of mapping, language, and meaning, but I, I want to focus today's discussion on your work on um, semantic processing and schizophrenia. I think it might be meaningful here to say something about uh, your clinical training and how that informs your research just quickly. Right. I, I mean, I think that uh, does inform my research. I uh, began uh, my training um, uh, through medicine in uh, London at St. Bartholomew's Hospital and then went on to my residency uh, program at the Maudsley Hospital and Institute of Psychiatry in London. And it was really uh, during my residency where I was seeing patients uh, with acute psychosis um, and uh, in particular, those patients with schizophrenia, whose language was very disorganized, uh, really intrigued me. Um, not only how neurobiologically this could happen, but how this could happen in their brains at a cognitive level. And it was really uh, through that experience uh, that I began to be very interested in cognitive psychology and uh, cognitive neuroscience. And that um, uh, really um, inspired me to do a PhD in cognitive neuroscience at King's College uh, in London. And uh, then after that, I uh, landed up at Mass General and Tufts University, which is where I am now. Great. So my next question was, do you use language as a tool to learn about schizophrenia or vice versa? Is schizophrenia a window into understanding how we process? I would say both. Um, yes, that's uh, what I figured. So we could expand on Although... Um, the former, I think, is more controversial than the latter. Um, but uh, language is the way humans uh, have evolved, uh, evolved to communicate their thoughts. Um, and language is pretty special uh, in that it's a system by which we understand how we can combine individual concepts um, into novel, new concepts. And um, as such, it's, uh, I think it's a very important system um, that can tell us how uh, the disorganized thinking and how many of the complex phenomena that we see in um, schizophrenia, how they can arise. So I think it's an important tool for getting into uh, understanding mechanisms of thought dis disturbances in schizophrenia. So just quickly, um, since uh, we don't, none of us are clinicians, but can you summarize the hallmarks of language dysfunction in schizophrenia? And, and as you do so, could you also just um, comment on, on how possible it is to disentangle whether these aberrations that you're going to um, point out can be attributed to thought disorder, faulty language comprehension, or language productions, because they're all sort of mixed together. And yeah. Now, these are very important questions. Um, many people... Um, studying language don't think about schizophrenia as uh, a disorder that's characterized by abnormal language. Um, however, psychiatrists studying schizophrenia are taught um, you know, during their training uh, that uh, there is an aspect of schizophrenia known as positive thought disorder that is defined 
by disorganized, incoherent speech. And so if you ask any psychiatrist, um, can language and speech abnormalities be abnormal in schizophrenia, they'll say yes. But if you actually ask most speech and language pathologists, you know, uh, tell me about language disturbances in schizophrenia, uh, they'll sort of raise their eyebrows and say, I didn't know there were any. So, so there's a really interesting disconnect. Um, but there are language abnormalities in schizophrenia. Um, as I say, they're most clinically prominent in this phenomenon called uh, thought disorder. Uh, which is the disorganized speech uh, produced by a subset of, of patients. Um, but I think actually they think they go deeper than that. So the, fir the first person who describes schizophrenia, uh, Bloiler, um, uh, really thought of, as, uh, thought, thought of thought disorder as uh, a clue into the underlying pathophysiology of schizophrenia as a whole. And to some degree, I, I agree that that might be the case. So in some of our work, we've started off with a phenomenon of thought disorder to inspire the designs of some of our ERP and fMRI studies. But we've actually shown that some of the things that we're interested in uh, can be characteristic not only of patients with thought disorder, but patients with other kinds of disturbances in schizophrenia. Um, so that's really the answer um, to your first question. Now, the relationship between uh, language and thought uh, has uh, been a subject of debate and philosophy for many, many years. Um, Clinically, uh, we're taught that uh, the, the language disturbances, this incoherent speech that we see in some patients with schizophrenia, uh, is a manifestation of underlying thought disturbances. But that's largely a sort of historical uh, t terminology, the why we call this thought disorder, because it's clinically measurable uh, in their behavior, which is, which is language. Um, but uh, more recently, I've begun to think of it as more of the uh, thought disturbances, because because, it, because it's manifest not only through language, it's also manifest non-verbally as well. Um, uh, patients often have very disorganized behaviors, for example. Um, when uh, Certainly thought-disordered patients, when they draw, they can draw very kind of uh, really interesting disorganized kind of concepts. Um, and so, uh, and I think it's really about um, the relationships between meaningful concepts uh, that uh, are uh, unusual or different in patients with schizophrenia. Um, and so I don't think it's specific to language, although it's usually through language that we clinically measure it. So some of your clinical measures include looking at semantic priming at the word level in uh, schizophrenics, and, and you've shown that they actually don't show an N400 congruity effect. Now, I'm not a language person, so I may be getting some of the, the verbiage wrong here. But the idea is that they don't have that huh response when you show incongruous word pairs that normal people have. Is that right? Well, it um, can be right, but it's actually more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. um, so um, for those listeners who don't know what an N400 mm -hmm. is, uh, an N400 is uh, an electrophysiological response to meaningful stimuli. So if a meaningful stimulus, such as a word, uh, is preceded by um, a word or a sentence or a picture that's related to it or that um, allows that word to be more predicted, then this uh, electrophysiological response will be reduced. And so it's absolutely true to say that sometimes 
the N400 modulation, this ability to be reduced by a meaningful context that paves the way towards expecting a particular event or word, sometimes you're right, that is reduced in schizophrenia, but sometimes it can actually be enhanced in schizophrenia. Um, so, um, and that depends on the range of, of symptoms that you're seeing in the particular schizophrenics? Or no, it depends on the particular cognitive paradigm and the experimental uh, situation in which you, you're giving the patient. So, for example, under highly automatic conditions, when a patient doesn't have much time to think about the different associations, their N400 response can actually be increased, especially those patients who show this thought disorder. However, when you give patients um, time to think about their response and they're, uh, and they're doing things more with a strategy in mind, then the N400's response can be reduced. So the, the reason I initially brought, brought that up was because you were talking about cross-modal um, uh, sort of a, a generalization of disorganization type things. And do we see, do, have people looked at N400 effects in other modalities and are, is, it, is, there, is there a comparable Yes, um, they have, and it's um, really interesting. So in healthy individuals, um, then you see an N400 uh, effect not only to words that are congruous versus incongruous with their preceding context, but also to pictures that are congruous or incongruous with their preceding either picture context or indeed word context. Um, and um, uh, for example, you might see an unusual ending in a video clip uh, evoke a larger N400 response than an expected ending in a video clip. Um, and uh, patients uh, tend to actually show that particular kind of N400 response normally. What they don't seem to show in the video clips is uh, an ability to um, produce yet another ERP response, uh, which is a ERP uh, response to uh, conflict called the P600 effect, which is a later positivity that follows the N400. So in some of your work, you've parsed these out as sort of describing um, the output of So the way I understood it was that you see two serial levels of semantic processing, one at the level of the word and one that resolves meaning at the, at the global syntactic level, and these parse out into these two very different effects, right. one early, one but late. But I think it's really important to think of them, they're not serial. Uh -huh. So I think they're happening in parallel, and that the second um, ERP is basically uh, a response to conflict right. uh, between the outputs of these two streams of processing. So is that how we've traditionally thought of the P600? Is it... Is it's typically considered just a work measure, right? A late work measure. How? What is? The well, the P six hundred is thought to be sort of part of the. Are you sure you want to go? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Which is okay. The P six hundred is thought to be sort of part of the P three hundred family of ERP components, and there's a lot of controversy about exactly uh, what it is and what it isn't. Um, and so, the P three hundred is one of the best-known ERP components, and that's thought to be some general reflection of contextual updating. So you see it to oddball stimuli, for example, clicks, uh, which are surprising uh, in, uh, in a context of non-clicks, for example. Um, and then in language, uh, a sort of late manifestation of this uh, called the P600 was first described in the early 90s to syntactic anomalies, um, so uh, uh, you know, violations of grammar or structure. Um, and because that 
was so different from the N400. It was different in its latency. It was different in its morphology, the way it looks. Um, it was uh, thought to be, hey, we've got two neurophysiological signatures, one for semantics and one for syntax. Uh, but it turns out um, that the P600 can, in fact, be produced by semantic anomalies, uh, not just the N400. And whether you get one or both depends on the particular type of semantic anomalies and various other uh, things um, that can influence the way our brains process them. And so there's still a lot of research in what exactly these two neural signatures actually mean. Uh, but I think we can do away with the idea that there's one way the brain responds to uh, semantics and another way the brain responds to syntax and actually uh, the two ways of processing language, syntax and semantics um, are interacting all the time and that the P600 may actually be a reflection of conflict between the two. I see. So just the fact that one occurs at 400 milliseconds and one occurs at 600, to me, read as serial, but it's not at all the case. It's these are They're, they're not time-locked to the same event, are they? They are time-locked to the same event, and you're right. It's really interesting that this P600 um, occurs late. Um, but uh, even though it may peak late, it probably, A, starts earlier, and B, it... Um, it's initiated because of the conflict. Now, now the actual what the actual P six hundred this waveform itself is actually uh, reflecting is uh, even more controversial. It could reflect some additional processing or recovery from the conflict. It could reflect some attempt to repair. Um, uh, the uh, the input it could simply reflect a reanalysis of the input a sort of have I got this right um, analysis. So in a, in a parallel set of experiments with fMR, you've you've actually tried to map some of this stuff spatially and correlate it. Right. So I think it's really important to preface this that you know ERPs and fMRI have very very different uh, spatial resolutions and um, they're they're measuring different things. fMRI is measuring blood flow. ERP is, is measuring a much more immediate neurophysiological response. And so the way the two map onto each other isn't always clear. So I'm always very careful and I continue to be careful in saying what we see using a given paradigm, using fMRI, is not necessarily indexing the same cognitive process as we're indexing using ERPs. Nonetheless, we do see in the same way as we just see a distinction uh, between the N400 and P600 in a particular ERP P paradigm that evokes those two components. Similarly, we can see a distinction in the brain regions activated to the, those types of anomalies in an fMRI paradigm. Now, whether those map directly onto the ERP measures is um, is difficult to determine. Is it? Uh, <clears throat> it's, I don't know exactly how to ask this question, but it seems to me that that uh, this field is, is struggles a little bit with defining the what is the correct pattern of thought. So when we say somebody has a thought disorder, um, if I don't immediately know what that means because um, uh, because I do not know what is the correct order of thought. And uh, and when you say semantic incongruity, it's also like I guess you guys know what that means. You have an operational definition yes. for it, but 
semantic incongruity sounds like a very vague way of saying that something is illogical. And I wonder, uh, isn't logic, isn't formal logic our uh, human attempt to write down what is the correct order of thought? And, and does that not ever enter into any of this at all? I mean, no, you're absolutely right. All our operations are, all our definitions are operational. The way thought disorder, for example, in schizophrenia is defined is um, really um, sort of empirically according to the pattern of speech they produce. And, you know, I don't think any of us can sort of say this is the correct way, this is the incorrect way. What we care about, certainly as clinicians, what we care about is whether someone is able to effectively communicate. And when you think about how a disorder like schizophrenia or indeed any other communication disorder is going to impact people's lives, it's actually not a matter of whether it's correct or not. It might be actually very interesting and, and in some ways very difficult deep. Um, yes, it could be very poetic, but you know, the, the real question is whether this is actually going to be effectively able for me to be able to ask someone else to do something. In other words, whether this is going to disrupt my ability to carry out my life effectively. And sometimes thought disorder yeah. really can. So, But, but, you're, but it's, you're still postulating a an underlying process, thought disorder, that is really... No, and you're right. A thought disorder itself is incredibly heterogeneous. And that is precisely why I think it's so important for people who know something about language, for example, to begin to look at it. Because clinically, um, psychiatrists have always defined uh, thought disorder as, yes, a, a speech that doesn't communicate things very well. And then research-wise, there, ha there are a bunch of thought disorder scales where people rate it along various dimensions, such as tangent how tangential the thought is, whether they're answering questions directly or not, uh, whether there's lots of what we call loosening of, loosening of associations or um, word associations within the speech, whether they're not saying much at all, whether it seems illogical. So those are the way people, uh, clinicians or re uh, clinician researchers look at this. But uh, one of the reasons why um, I think that uh, psycholinguistics and, uh, has something to offer this clinical research is that there are ways that people in language have begun to operationalize relationships between words and sentences or words in discourse, um, which is very, very systematic. And I think some of those measures and some of those ways of thinking about and certainly some of those mechanisms of understanding underlying processing can in turn be applied to this uh, clinical uh, population and used to inform um, sort of what exactly is going on with this heterogeneous thing that we group together uh, as thought disorder. But I guess I take your answer as no, I don't think the field of logic actually has anything to offer here. Is that, is well, that well, a way of logic, paraphrasing it? I mean, logic does come into uh, language through linguistics. Um, and they use it a lot. It's linguistics is a, a lot of what linguists do is sit there and try to logically dissect a sentence. But that's not what we do in real time. And there's, there is actually a large disconnect between linguists and psycholinguists um, in taking into account what people do in real time and not what is logically possible in a, in a, in a sentence structure. So oftentimes what you end up having to do is, I think what you're hinting at is that we don't know what correct or normal is, so how can you say that a behavior is abnormal? Or well, where I do you place it on the scale? I think the whole field of logic is designed to say what what is a normal thought pattern? So if you say, uh, 
if you, if you make a premise and then you make a conclusion, and if your premise and conclusion don't, don't uh, uh, violate the rules of logic, then you would say that's a thought disorder. And at least that was a crazy sentence even if it's not coming from a crazy person. Right, but I think Nicole's right that when you get into things like thought and language, that's where the field of linguistics comes in, and that has its own rules and representations. Some of them are, that are borrowed from logic um, that uh, enable you to say whether or not this is a crazy sentence or not. Certainly at the level of discourse, people can really analyze whether something makes sense, whether it, it has truth value, whether it doesn't, and, and that that's part of what I meant when I said that we can use the uh, the discipline of both linguistics and psycholinguistics to begin begin to get a handle on what exactly is happening at the level of of, of psychotic thought. So one of the kind of relates to one of the things I wanted to ask you that there is a sense that, uh, from my understanding, that, that schizophrenia is a continuum and that you can actually find schizotypy uh, behaviors um, in the normal population or people that don't actually have full diagnosis of schizophrenia. And so I'm wondering if, if in the same vein, if you can have degrees of logical disruption in the discourse. Um, I know in, you can have that. <laughs> that you have, you know, I can, well, I, I won't say. I was going to say my, my husband could be one of those cases, but, but uh, uh, they're on that continuum of, of making, uh, getting from A to B the yeah. way that most people do it, um, and as opposed to going through your your circuitous manner and getting to the thought eventually or right. preempting. Yes. Um, no, I think it's important to realize not just thought disorder, but other symptoms in schizophrenia can be seen uh, on a continuum, as you say, and uh, someone who's uh, you know someone who's not suffering from any type of mental illness can under certain circumstances exhibit thought disorder I know I do when I'm very tired um, and certainly my dis uh, my behavior can be quite disorganized too under such circumstances um, it's true that certain people exhibit it more often than others and that and that it can go along with things like uh, schizotypy uh, which is a term uh, used to describe uh, some people from uh, the general population who um, don't have symptoms that uh, reach the criteria of functional impairments that may be associated with schiz uh, schizophrenia, uh, but certainly can exhibit um, some uh, symptoms uh, on uh, that are less severe than patients with schizophrenia, including uh, some degree of thought disorder. Does it happen first in comprehension? Does it happen first in production? Are you able to map out where the dysfunction begins? Right. I think you're asking two things there. First of all, uh, when these symptoms, including thought disorder, may manifest. And second, um, once again, what the relationship is, is between comprehension and production, whether one's selectively impaired at particular times. So to first to answer your first question, I mean, uh, so schizophrenia is something that we understand as a neurodevelopmental disorder, and that uh, even before the uh, first break episode, the thing that may lead to eventually to a diagnosis of schizophrenia, uh, the even before this first break episode, that some patients um, 
have this prodromal period where they have may have attenuated psychotic symptoms. And um, actually, there's been some research suggesting that thought disorder uh, can be quite prominent during that prodromal period. Um, there's also research suggesting that um, language disturbances can occur in patients who will later on develop schizophrenia really quite early. And uh, obviously, there's not good data on that because you never know who's going to develop schizophrenia. But there is uh, some data uh, sort of looking at school tests and finding that language um, is particularly impaired uh, in the early years in patients who will later go on to develop uh, schizophrenia. So, that, so it's, you know, those relationships between uh, early language and later language disturbance in schizophrenia are, are really interesting and are, I think, really important for future uh, research. Now, the whole relationship between language production and comprehension is, is complex. Um, lang uh, thought disorder, by definition, is clinically measured through language production. That's how we define it. Um, however, there's been relatively little uh, exploration and research, surprisingly little exploration and research into patients' language comprehension. On the surface of things, most patients with schizophrenia can, can comprehend language just fine, and no one would be um, you know, disputing that. However, patients with thought disorder, um, when you look at more subtle measures of comprehension, and uh, when you look at this more comprehensively, it turns out certainly that in their real-time processing, uh, things are not fine, and that there's certain aspects of language comprehension that are impaired in patients. And it's just, I think, a really important avenue for future research to really try and figure um, that out, not only um, for to understand sort of mechanistically what's going on, but also uh, sort of functionally, whether that is actually leading to some of the social communication functions that do characterize some patients with schizophrenia. I do want to say one thing for, you know, that it's really important to um, to express for anyone who might be listening. Um Language disturbances don't necessarily occur in all patients with schizophrenia, at least clinically. Clinically, um, it's only a subset of patients with schizophrenia who may have this uh, thought disorder. Not all patients uh, will have thought disorder. However, um, even if a patient doesn't have a thought disorder, they may have some more subtle language deficits um, and thought, dis thought dysfunction uh, that uh, may be uh, leading to some uh, dysfunction. And uh, so um, in just the way, in just the same way that, that there's a huge amount of interest in cognition in schizophrenia in general, I think it's also uh, to put language and the study of language firmly uh, there as, as being part of an essential part of human cognition that's uh, very important to study in patients with schizophrenia and to understand. That, do you think this, um, you were saying that if you give them long enough that you can see some normal uh, uh, outcomes in, in the electrophysiological measures, like the N400, if you have enough time. What do you think is actually happening? Is it is it a circuitous way of getting through the semantic network um, to arrive at the right solution, or because of this extra activation of other information? Okay, so it's, it's, very, it's very interesting. Um, electrophysiology uh, electrophysiology tell, tells us what can happen in real time. Um, and um, there we see clear deficits. And we also sometimes see behavioral deficits in addition. Um, but um, 
The pattern of deficits, as I hinted at before, can depend on the precise task the patient is asked to do. Uh, so under more automatically uh, automatic conditions, uh, patients can actually show a normal N400 effect or perhaps even a larger N400 effect than healthy individuals. Um, however, uh, when they're asked to, uh, for example, um, judge the relationships between individual words, they can actually show a smaller N400 effect than healthy individuals. And then there's the other question. There's uh, some research uh, from sort of more semantic memory paradigms where um, where that require the use of strategies, for example, to to group like words together. Turns out that patients with schizophrenia don't necessarily. Uh, get and employ those strategies um, like as much as healthy individuals do. But when they are actually told the strategies and, talk, and taught them, they can actually do quite well in those tasks. So I find this sort of encouraging. First of all, the data from the electrophysiology said, suggests that, um, you know, that the apparatus are there. They, they, they do those they those relationships are stored and they can access them under some circumstances um, and the challenge is to uh, basically um, to basically work with patients enable uh, to enable to them to use them uh, under the right circumstances um, that of course is is a real challenge and part of cognitive remediation um, and I will say that despite there being some more interest in cognitive uh, methods of remediation for some symptoms of schizophrenia including negative symptoms including hearing voices and things like that there are no methods, uh, no trials, no data on the use of cognitive remediation for language disturbances and schizophrenia. And I think the reason for that is something that I also alluded to before, and that is that speech and language pathologists, those are the people who are usually the ones who will do um, language remediation in um, childhood or in stroke, um, really haven't been in the page at all with mental illness, particularly schizophrenia. I think largely because even though it's a neurodevelopmental disorder, it onsets later, it's just seen by a completely different group of clinicians, and therefore it's not on the map as something that affects language, but it does. And I do believe that uh, there really is room for the development of some kind of cognitive remediation for those subsets of patients who find it difficult to express their thoughts. Do these uh, language symptoms respond to antipsychotic drugs? They do. And that's another reason why uh, I think, uh, to some degree, they've uh, been dismissed as a, as a clear target for cognitive remediation. So unlike, say, negative symptoms, um, thought disorder does absolutely respond to most um, uh, antipsychotic drugs. However, not completely and not in all patients. So there are certainly patients who are on excellent antipsychotic drugs, such as clazarol, for example, um, who still have residual thought disorder. It's and it's really those patients... According to what they do and don't respond to drugs and then get some insight from looking at the, the differences? Is it, I took all the, all the symptoms that respond to... Yeah, they tend to be the positive symptoms. The positive symptoms tend to respond much more to antipsychotics than the negative symptoms. And there's uh, huge, um, you know, uh, research efforts to try and develop drugs uh, that uh, are better for the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. So one of the, uh, but it's but it's important to know that not that in many patients. Um, 
they can still have residual psychotic symptoms. So even though uh, they may largely uh, improve with antipsychotic drugs, there are many patients who will still be hearing voices and some patients who will be still have um, thought disorder and some patients who will still have some delusions. Does it, does it kind of make sense the, the, what the positive symptoms all have in common? Because one of the things I think about is about schizophrenia is why is it unpleasant? Why is schizophrenia unpleasant? And there are even, I guess, some patients for whom it's not. But generally, people don't like being schizophrenic. Is, is that not right? Well, um, I mean... Would happily be... No, no. In, ge no. in general, um, the symptoms of psychosis and schizophrenia are disabling. Um, voices, um, hearing voices speak to you or speak about you inside your head constantly and relentlessly is horrible, could be horrible. I don't know, but I can only begin to imagine how, how terrible that but must nobody feel. Nobody ever says somebody is injecting brilliant thoughts into my mind. Well, they, they do, absolutely, do they but not in schizophrenia. That's part right. of mania. So, so um, it's really important to appreciate that psychosis, and this includes thought disorder, hearing voices, and delusions, is not just part of schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is the mental illness with which it's probably most clearly associated, but you, you, you can have, as part of mania, but as part of bipolar disorder, um, you can have thought disorder, you can have um, hearing voices, and you can have wonderful, grandiose delusions and brilliant voices telling you that you're the greatest and the best. And yes, that people will quite enjoy. But unfortunately, it's accompanied by other symptoms can, that which can lead to real functional impairment. And that is, uh, you know, that they can be spending all their money and, and ruining their lives. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so, you know, I, there I've tried to highlight two things. First of all, the fact that um, psychosis is not just manifest in schizophrenia, it's manifest in mania, it can be manifest in major depressive disorder. Um, it's also manifest in many medical disorders. You know, it can be part of dementias, uh, part of Alzheimer's disease, part of delirium. Uh, it can be uh, a symptom of any uh, medical disorder uh, that uh, affects the brain. It can be. So when we see those those kinds of symptoms in a whole bunch of different disorders, and then in schizophrenia they respond to antipsychotic drugs, would those symptoms also respond to antipsychotic drugs in the other disorders? Yes, yeah, so although they would need to be used wisely. So for example, if I had um, you know someone with Alzheimer's disease who was part of the Alzheimer's was affecting her brain, and uh, she, for example, was experiencing um, kind of uh, hearing voices or was seeing things that weren't there or was being really, really paranoid, um, then you're, she, those pro symptoms probably would respond to antipsychotic drugs, but you've got to be very careful. You'd obviously give them in a very different dose in a very different way, and you might not give them at all because of their side effects. Uh, so, um, but well, absolutely, antipsychotic drugs are, can be used um, for any form of psychosis, but in reality, you've got to be really, really careful about how they're used because they have side effects. So I want to, I want to end by coming back to some, some of your um, structural work that you did that showed cortical thinning in a population of schizophrenics in, in certain areas that line up pretty well with the network that you describe in some of your functional studies. Could you just tell us quickly about that? Okay, so um, 
In one of our earlier studies, we used uh, techniques developed at Mass General Hospital to basically unfold the cortical ribbon, which is really, if you think about it, a two-dimensional structure, and basically measured uh, cortical thickness, so how thick that um, slab of gray matter is at every point uh, in the cortex. And uh, we showed that uh, patients with schizophrenia have cortical thinning um, across widespread areas uh, within the frontal and temporal, mainly cortices, but both medial and lateral. And some of those areas, yes, absolutely do overlap uh, spatially with some of the areas that in subsequent studies we show abnormal function, but not all. And so I don't think there's a very straightforward relationship between thinning and uh, function for a variety of different reasons. So has no one ever looked at that histologically? I mean, Oh, that- yes. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, in post-mortem studies, uh, people have shown thinning. So what's and the they've, nature of this thinning? So they show, I mean, you know, it, it's difficult, and it's also difficult to uh, distinguish the effects of the medication from mm-hmm. the yeah. effects of the disorder, etc. Uh, but there's uh, some reduced dendritic branching, reduced neuropel, um, and so there are a number of histological changes that have Parietal cortex, inferior parietal cortex, and postmortem studies. I mean, do we have any? That's why the study that I did, and that's subsequently been replicated in much larger samples, um, was so important because. Um, when people did these histological postmortem studies, it would take a single person a year, you know, to look at thickness in one very, very small part of the brain, you know, and uh, and it's just in a small group of patients, and so it would be virtually impossible to be able to do the what the kind of study that we did, uh, which allowed you to look at you know, thickness across the whole cortical surface at all in the postmortem brain, uh, never mind in the living brain. And uh, so that's why these neuroimaging techniques can be so powerful because they can actually not only allow you to look at the living brain, but also, and not only allow you not only to look at structure, but also uh, function, uh, but finally can, because they can be automated, uh, can allow you to look at much more than someone could look at in the postmortem brain. So traditionally, people said that there weren't reliable structural changes in in schizophrenia that would put it in the same category with neurodegenerative diseases. But because the precision of measurement is so improved in this, the ease of measurement, and the fact that you can measure living brains and not have to worry about shrinkage and postmortem effects and everything, is is it possible to reconsider that and? And, and to really look for a, an anatomical... Right. So, um, I mean, yes, that's all. I mean, I th- you know, if you look at what we've done using these neuroimaging techniques, um, both electrophysiological as well as sort of structural, I think we can put our hands on our hearts and say we've proved you know, that schizophrenia is as much a neurobiological disorder as any other neurobiological disorder. What we are not at the stage of is being able to use any of these measures diagnostically with the type of specificity and sensitivity that we can, say, take an individual patient with 
who has a clinical diagnosis of schizophrenia, and it is a clinical diagnosis like most neuropsychiatric disorders, and say, okay, let's measure your brain, and we'll say, you know, because you have this amount of thinning in these areas, uh, you have schizophrenia. We're not nearly at that stage but because there's so the much cortex. overlap. It could be there's a whole thalamus, thalamic nucleus that's missing, or there could be a... No. I mean, I, I think we'd know that. I, I, certainly at a gross kind of biological level, we'd know if that was the case. And it's not. So, so absolutely, people are interested in using these neurobiological measures diagnostically. And but the holy grail is to find the right combination or the right measures um, that, uh, in combination, can uh, be able to uh, improve upon the uh, the clinical diagnosis. Can ERPs be used in single subjects? Like, can the P six hundred affect the lack of it be used diagnostically at all, pre morbidly? So I think, you know, uh, certainly uh, things like the P300 and the P600 um, are fairly reliably reduced in patients with schizophrenia. But once again, it's a matter of sensitivity and specificity because they're also reduced in ADD. They're also reduced in depression. So they're reduced in a whole different, a whole variety of different disorders. And so, you know, the question is, can I use this diagnostically for schizophrenia? Very difficult. And the other thing is, um, in, in uh, you know, uh, the, when we when I report my measures in my patients, I, I, in my papers, I'm averaging across uh, many patients in order to be able to get adequate signal to noise of these measures. And uh, sometimes that might be difficult in an individual but you subject. The, you, you do show a continuum relationship, so you could plot someone along the continuum of the relationship between the degree of the disorder and the... Yes, no, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So I don't know when the, net, when the DSM-5 is coming out, but do you expect a major reclassification based on some of these issues? I mean, is that... Well, I think initially there was real hope or kind of some talk in the DSM-5 of being able to include some biological measures, but uh, from what I hear, uh, I don't think we're there yet. Um, so the DSM-5, similar to the DSM-4, will be primarily a clinical classification system. Um, that's not to say they might be. One of the things I think they're doing away in DSM-5 for schizophrenia is they're uh, reducing the uh, emphasis on the subtypes of schizophrenia, which I think is probably the right thing to do. So before we had things like paranoid schizophrenia, you know, hyperphrenic schizophrenia, different kinds of schizophrenia, and that's being de-emphasized. Why? Is it not, because it wasn't true? that useful clinically uh -huh. or, or research-wise. I think what is useful is, you know, understanding the symptoms and understanding how the individual symptoms go along with different neurobiological indices. But it wasn't that helpful to be able to, I think there was just so much, there is so much heterogeneity that it, it wasn't all that helpful, those subtypes of schizophrenia. Well, thank you for being with us. This was really interesting. Uh, thanks, Tina Cooperberg. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm -hmm.